And welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. Delighted to say I'm here with Mike Lee. He's a professor of organizational behavior at INSEAD. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be here. And I know that you're, you're normally in Paris, right? But uh, you, you've headed back to the States uh, right now, given our current situation. Yeah, yeah. So um, my family, you know, I'm from the US. Uh, so we moved to Paris last fall. Uh, we endured the longest train strike in about 50 years uh, over the winter. And then, of course, this hit and we decided we, um, you know, with our one-year-old daughter, uh, felt like we wanted to be closer to family and have a little bit more space than our uh, uh, cramped Paris apartment. So, um, so we, we came back and... Uh, we're going to be here until, you know, we don't know how long we're going to be here, uh, but we are um, you know, monitoring the situation and um, looking forward to, to getting back to Paris at some point. What, what do you miss most about uh, Gay Paris? I must admit, I've only been there a few times. But... Um, the bread, I would say. Um, I know that's probably pretty uh, cliche, uh, but, you know, the bread in the U.S. is just, you realize how... Um, how subpar it is relative to, uh, and, and also just hard, how hard, how difficult it is to get fresh bread um, in the U.S. versus in, in Paris. So we really miss our baguettes and our croissants, croissants, uh, so pan au chocolat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I'll. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you'll be getting get, getting back back to them soon. Yeah, and also cafe life, you know, we miss as well, but uh, we probably won't be getting that uh, for very uh, for for a while, even in even when we get back. So that's that's too bad. Yeah, they do cafes very well, don't they? There isn't. Yeah, yeah there's no real comparison with a, with a Starbucks, is there? <laughs> End of your block and uh, some of those Paris cafes. Yeah, that's right. Okay, good. So so we we I came across you and um, through previous guests. Amy Edmondson, uh, and then having researched you a little bit, you know, I, I realize you've, you've done some work with Amy on, around sort of, um, relational dynamics and psychological safety, but you've also got this interest in Holacracy. We've also had Brian Robertson, the founder of Holacracy, on the show. So there's a couple of strands which I'm really excited about getting into in this interview, which I, which I hope will be of interest to the, to the audience. So um, should we start with the, the psychological safety and, and the work that you've done with Amy? And for those sort of just fresh to that topic? Should we start with a, a, a definition for people? Yeah, so psychological safety is um, essentially a concept that uh, Amy, who was my dissertation advisor at Harvard, uh, really uh, kind of made famous uh, and really expounded upon. Essentially, it's a feature of teams in uh, the team culture and team climate where people feel uh, psychologically safe, hence the term, to speak up, to take risks, to make mistakes without fearing, you know, punishment or social sanctions or, um, you know, other negative consequences to those actions. And what we know from a lot of research is that, uh, that people are very reluctant to speak up. Uh, it's something that you would think, you know, I think intuitively we would think is not that difficult in daily life, in family, in our friends. People don't have a problem speaking up. But you put them in organizations, you put them in a hierarchy, and all of a sudden, um, you know, people are very sensitive to 
um, whether or not they are saying something that other people, particularly those higher up in the hierarchy, are going to dislike, um, especially if you're disagreeing with something. Um, and so, and so a, a huge body of research has shown the, the tendency and prevalence of people being silent, not speaking up with issues, um, and, all kind, and, and the kinds of consequences that has for organizations. So this, is, this, this isn't just a sort of a trivial matter in organizations. This is something that can have huge consequences. Most notably, you know, uh, we know famous examples like the Challenger, the, the Challenger disaster, the Columbia disaster uh, at NASA that were a result of, in part, people's fear of speaking up and disagreeing and providing alternative viewpoints to those in in higher management positions and so 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 Amy's research and a lot of other people have have documented the importance and power of psychological safety essentially the the, the kind of antidote to this tendency to, to be silent in organizations um, and you know what we know now is that psychological safety uh, is one of the uh, most powerful drivers of of team learning and team performance. Um, and so that's not, that hasn't only been shown in an academic setting, but also in the, in, in sort of the field. Uh, so, so Google famously, I'm sure many of your listeners know about Google's project Aristotle, where they essentially uh, analyzed a bunch of their data and their teams uh, and examined what were the factors that predicted uh, which teams were most, uh, most successful. And there are a variety of factors that they found, but psychological safety was by far the most important driver of team performance that, that they found. So, so it's right. and, and is it not true as well that they, they were sort of searching around for what this factor might be? And it was when they, they came across Amy's work that they, they made the link and found that this could be the, the, uh, that's right. That's right. Magic factor, right? That's right. Yeah. Mm. And and you so so you you wrote a dissertation and Amy was your supervisor. What was it specifically that you looked looked at that sort of that, in this area? So so my dissertation was on a slightly adjacent area, um, but that I think re- is deeply is related to uh, Amy's work on psychological safety. So I've always been interested in how do we address some of the problems with hierarchy. So we know hierarchy. Uh, you know, is very, very uh, powerful in enabling coordination and control in organizations, providing a sort of structure for progression. So there are lots of functions to this hierarchy, but but we also know there are a, a large number of dysfunctions to hierarchy, whether that's, you know, what I just described, the tendency for people to not speak up and share information up the hierarchy. Um, but also there are lots of problematic human power dynamics that arise in organizations. We know now from the last 20, 25 years of research in social psychology that, um, that power tends to basically ca- cause what is similar to a type of brain damage, that it makes people mildly sociopathic, it makes people less empathetic, um, it makes people treat other people as means rather than ends. Um, and so uh, all of these, you know, these power dynamics and hierarchies create... Um, you know, a lot of the relational disconnects and unhappiness uh, that we see in, in many organizations. And so I, in my dissertation, was looking at organizations that were deliberately trying to eliminate the traditional hierarchy. Um, and so, 
so in many ways, I was motivated uh, by, I think, the similar observation that that Amy makes in her research about the, the challenges of operating in a hierarchy, some of the dysfunctions. How do we really uh, really address that? I, I happen to be looking at it from much more a macro structural uh, perspective, like how do organizations uh, operate without hierarchy and what are the consequences, what are the dynamics of doing so? Um, whereas psychological safety is much more of kind of at, at the cultural level in the kind of interpersonal dynamics uh, of the of the teams and organizations. And I will say subsequently, I've done other research that wasn't in my dissertation that specifically looks at psychological safety and team dynamics and how teams can improve those dynamics. Um, so I've done research on both, uh, both, both topics. Right. Well, maybe let's start, let's start with the hierarchy piece and, and then come back to the, to the team dynamics. So, so sure. what did you discover, um, in these organizations that had attempted to make a, a, I suppose a conscious attempt to limit the hierarchy? Yeah. So one, it's very difficult. Uh, so I, I happened to be looking at a couple of organizations. One, uh, one study I looked at was essentially I did uh, an ethnography, uh, which, you know, going in depth for, uh, you know, more than a year, interviewing people, uh, observing the work, observing meetings. Um, and this was an organization that adopted holacracy, um, which is one approach to creating uh, a self-managing organization or an organization that eliminates or gets rid of the traditional management hierarchy. And so what I found was, uh, what was interesting, I think, about this organization and about holacracy uh, more broadly is that it took a very different approach to kind of operating in a decentralized or flat way. So normally, and most of the examples that we have of organizations that get rid of bosses or get rid of traditional managers is that they tend to be fairly unstructured, that people's roles tend to be pretty ill-defined. They're very fluid and ambiguous. Uh, Decision-making tends to be made in the team uh, in a consensus-based fashion. Um, and, and so there's this archetype of the flat organization that is very organic and fairly uh, unstructured. And what I found fascinating about this organization and about Holacracy is that it took a very different approach. It decided, no, we may be getting rid of vertical hierarchy or vertical structure, but we're going to substitute for that an increase in horizontal structure. So we're going to really clearly define roles. We're going to make those roles really visible, right? We're going to, we're going to make those roles dynamic. So we're going to be constantly revising these roles. And, and so what I have found was that this, I think, new or different configuration of a flat organization, one that's very structured horizontally, but not so structured vertically, um, was that it enabled the organization to address some of the core issues or challenges with getting rid of hierarchy. Namely, how do you enforce accountability? How do you make sure people get their work done? How do you support coordination? And so people know what they're supposed to be doing and, 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 and how do you manage those interdependencies? Um, but, but I think the most surprising thing I found was that actually the, the, the role structures helped support empowerment, which is one of the primary goals of these systems. Um, and, and the way it did that is because people, because they knew their, 
the boundaries of their roles really clearly. They were more, especially the, 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 those who were more at the front lines, those who were lower down in the hierarchy, they, they would tend to, they, it made them more confident in exercising the power that the system gave them. Uh, whereas before and without that clarity, they would have been more conservative or maybe more hesitant to say, okay, I can make this decision now because things were much more clear in the system because they were made explicit and visible. Many people felt like that helped them actually exercise that power. And on the, on the, on the, on the opposite side. So for senior people in the organization, these sort of clear role boundaries of authority helped provide a limit uh, or a sort of uh, help them be more mindful of when they might be overstepping the authority that they had in holacracy that, you know, they didn't have these limits th that didn't exist in the prior hierarchical system. Um, and so, so it was really interesting to see how kind of actually creating these structures, creating these boundaries actually supported uh, decentralization of power, supported empowerment of frontline employees. Right. And going back to your brain damage point earlier, did you did did you have any evidence that those at the the top of this hierarchy were less sociopathic? Or that's interesting. Um, so what I found was that senior people there was a, a split. So some senior people really struggled with adapting to the new system. Um, they struggled, they struggled with the loss of control. Um, in many ways they became more controlling than they were before. So I had one example of a leader who was viewed generally as a pretty good manager, pretty good leader, empowered his people. But after the shift to the new system, he became more controlling and people chafed much more under his leadership than than before so it actually was an interesting uh kind of contrast or revealing of maybe some underlying tendencies that was not that were not as uh, clear in the hierarchical structure and then i had other you had other senior uh kind of managers and, and leaders who really took to the system very naturally and actually felt like it opened and sort of empowered them, freed up their time uh, to, to really focus on more strategic and long-term uh, uh, long issues in their teams, in their organization. And so, you know, and, and I think it was interesting because some of these leaders talked about how they they never wanted to micromanage, but they almost felt like they had to in a hierarchical structure. And so they felt like this new system made it okay not to micromanage, uh, which, is, which is a pretty interesting uh, observation that maybe what we're doing with hierarchy is we're sort of making that the default. We're making micromanagement, making controlling uh, the default. And, and so one way to think about, I think, the, what these new systems like Holacracy are doing is they're changing the default. Um, they're sort of changing the default towards let's empower, let's not micromanage. It doesn't mean that that doesn't exist, right? There's plenty of, there's still micromanagement, there's still controlling that happens even in organizations that have adopted these new systems, but it's less prevalent because there's a new default, because there's a set of processes and structures and rules 
to, to discourage that type of behavior. Right. That makes sense. But also that, at least for in, the, in the case of this one individual, you, you may get a, a blowback effect and it actually in increasing the level of those yeah, tendencies. That's right. individuals. And like, it sounds like the structure itself didn't, wasn't able to deal with that, right? That, that behavior still existed in the system. It did get kind of self-managed out. That's well, so, 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 so what happened ultimately is that the team members uh, were, became really frustrated uh, because this individual, this leader was acting in a way that, you know, contradicted every principle and rule of the system and ultimately, um, you know, was reassigned to a different part of the organization, ended up leaving the organization. So, you know, whether or not yeah, that was <laughs> all because, yeah, whether that was all because of this transition in the system or not, it definitely was part of the, the uh, it was a factor in that evolution. And so it didn't stop the immediate behavior, but, but what it did was it eventually made that behavior untenable for the organization if they wanted to continue to operate in this, in this way. Right. And then you, you talk about this beyond the hypervelocracy. What, what did you discover in terms of the limitations, I suppose, specifically of holacracy and then maybe more generally at sort of self-managing yeah. organizations? Yeah. So I think, um, so I found, I found a few limitations, right? So I found a few, like any system, uh, every, every system, there is no panacea, right? So I think, um, some people look to these new ways of work, working these new systems as, as you know, the, the path to organizational nirvana. Um, but I think every system has its, its own issues, its own trade-offs. And what I found with, uh, with holacracy at least is that um, the, it, it cre this sort of the, the fact that they created all of these uh, really well-defined roles and made these roles really visible while it helped in many of the ways I just described, what it did is it created some problematic uh, issues. One was that it made people so focused on their individual roles and their jobs that they became less attuned to collective, uh, collective issues like team, uh, sort of a team concepts, the culture of the organization, the cultural values, which used to be a very prominent uh, part of how um, of governing how people interacted and behaved became less uh, sort of salient um, because now everyone was focused on, okay, is this, is this my job? Is this your job? Where are the boundaries between our roles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, another thing which was surprising, which I think is relevant for the title, you know, your podcast is, is called being human um, that in many ways, the, the 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 new system and the focus on these roles actually made relationships more depersonalized. Um, and in some ways this was viewed as positive because it felt people felt like they could make decisions and take actions without sort of being so concerned about other people's feelings, right? That like you had some clear objective basis for resolving conflicts in order organizations. But on the other hand, it made people feel like, um, in some ways, like, like relationships were colder. So, yeah. you know, people felt like it just was a cold system. Um, and so I think that that was a really interesting tension. Um, and I think it's a broader tension in organizations, right? Like, like what, um, 
like when is being human good for organizations and when is being human really uh, dysfunctional for organizations, right? Because like being human is not just a, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good and bad, right? Humans, we're human beings. <laughs> are. Right. <laughs> we do great things and we're also really annoying and, you know, yeah. uh, problematic. Uh, and so, so I think the organizations deal with the same issue. How do you get the great aspects of humanity um, but, but, but sort of minimize the problematic tendencies that, that we humans uh, exhibit? Yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, a couple of things come to mind. So I've done a couple of simulations of holacracy, these workshops where you get Mm -hmm. to simulate one of these meetings. And I actually found it great fun, but there was something a little robotic about it. You know, you've got these very set scripts and you're allowed to speak from a certain frame at a certain point in the meeting. And so it did felt, so so I can imagine how people are around that for a while start to feel a bit dehumanized it. By and actually yeah. some people in the workshop were like oh god i couldn't do that you know they just the just the, the workshop experience of it they had quite a visceral yeah re- reaction yeah I, th- I, th- I think there is a huge divergence in like what people's natural inclination and tendencies towards you know having process having these rules and whether that's view that feels um you know really good and empowering versus like really icky and uh and and sort of confining um so like my wife for instance she knows a lot about holacracy from my research and she just you know has a visceral uh, aversion to to it whereas like for me you know i think when i saw that or when i when i when i sat in on my first meeting um i was like oh this is this is really interesting um and so you know i think it's like it's a some some sort of personality i think um characteristic that uh that that affects how people react to it. Yeah, yeah. And then the other thing that strikes me is I, I, I read an article about from um, Tony Heish. Is that, I don't know. Sure, sure how Tony Shea. Shea, Shea yeah. Sorry, Tony Shea from Zappos. And he uh, was talking about how the, one of the things they'd had to do with their holacracy implementation was was kind of go back and and uh, reassert the Zappos culture, right? And yes. and and reconnect to. Which is which actually charges what exactly what you've just said actually that that people sort of lose the wood for the trees right that they're, they're so into the system uh, of how they work they forget the the broader that's organization right. that's right yeah that's right I mean there's sort of a a, a a finite amount of attention that people have have in organizations and so you know are people paying attention to the culture are people paying attention to the meeting rules or the holacracy constitution, their formal roles are people paying, you know, so, so in the end, right, the organization had to find the right balance uh, between, um, between where people were putting their attention. Um, And they were finding so much of the attention was being paid to what's my role, what's my job, uh, you know, is it yours or mine, that the attention on these other factors was becoming, um, was becoming too, too scarce. Mm. Uh, and I did want to say, because your, your initial question was, you know, beyond the holacracy hype, which was an article that I co-wrote with, uh, with some colleagues in, in HBR a few years ago. And I think the argument we were making there is look like this is not something that most organizations are going to do, uh, because it's so radical because the, 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 the change process is so difficult. Um, that, that the, the, the point is not that this is, you know, that we should think this is the future of work, at least in its, in its sort of pure instantiation, but rather that this is something that more and more organizations are going to take pieces of. 
Um, and so we should be understanding, we should be studying these systems, not because we think this is what uh, organizations are going to look like, but because it can point to specific either tools, principles, uh, trends that are going to be uh, sort of increasingly present in in organizations. And so let's learn from these examples, right? They're kind of like the the canary in the coal mine, uh, the extreme cases that, um, yeah, we're not going to do that, but we can learn some things from this that, that even in a hierarchical structure, in a standard organizational structure, we can adopt. Right. And yeah, it seems to me there's a, there's a sort of broader point here that we, we, if we've got a default, which tends towards hierarchy and micromanagement, these are, this, is, this is an example of an alternate default, and maybe we're going to discover others as we go forward. That's right. That's right. So how do we architect right, the organization in a way that it creates the defaults that we want? So I love, you know, I mean, we, you know, I love the, the, really re, the, the research you know, from Cass Sunstein and, and other behavioral economists on, on choice architecture, right? So, so now we know that the way we, we, we become more and more aware of how the architecture of our choices and decisions uh, affects, you know, what we do. Uh, so whether that's, you know, is the fruit at the front of the, the, the cafeteria line or at the end, is our, is our uh, 401k uh, contribution made a default that we can change or is it sort of defaulted to no contribution? All of this matters a great deal just because we're, you know, we have a scarce amount of resources and it's in time and attention to really think through these things. So we're likely to go with, more likely to go with the default I think in organizations, it's very similar. So I, you know, I, I sort of become increasingly interested in this idea of how do organizations architect their processes and the interactions to foster uh, the types of interactions that we, we know are good for teams, that we know are good for performance, that we know are good for, for team dynamics, organi- you know, performance. Um, and unfortunately, most of the time, we just leave, we don't think about these things. Leaders don't think about these things things and we just sort of assume that people will figure it out we get the right people in the room um that organically that that is going to you know either uh these good dynamics or these negative dynamics are going to emerge and we just sort of hope for the best yeah (laughs) hire good people right i mean yeah exactly and so so i think so so what my race and this is the kind of moving into my research on team dynamics you know, what, what, what I found there is the sort of power of structuring the interactions in a way so that you're really nudging people uh, towards engaging with each other in the way that we know is good for team dynamics, such as like sh- being open, sharing about, you know, who you are, not just, you know, kind of being professional colleagues, but getting to know each other as people and as human beings, um, sharing, speaking up about work challenges, which, you know, we talked earlier uh, is a very difficult, a surprisingly difficult thing to do in organizations. Um, and so there are ways that teams can create the types of structures, these interaction structures to, to really facilitate these types of sharing behaviors, this openness and, and connectedness. Yeah, no, that makes and psychological safety. That, that, that makes a lot of, a lot of sense. Um, and, and management choice architecture. I mean, that sounds like a management consultant's wet dream, but I'm genuinely sort of interested by that, that idea, right? Like envisaging the organization of a, of a sort of suite of choices that managers can make 
and then being conscious about what those choices look like. That seems like a very powerful idea. And also, Chubbs, with the way that we know human cultures evolve, right? We, we, we evolve around ceremonies and formalized interaction and rules of engaging with each other. So it, it's a sort of, as I say this, it seems interesting to me that we, we've not really thought through that lens when it comes to organizations. Yeah, yeah. No, I think the rituals are it's like a great uh, kind of metaphor for uh, for what these are, right? These are sort of how do we create the rituals in our teams to um, to facilitate the types of interactions we, we want. Um, and, you know, I, and it, in a way, it goes back to the conversation we're having about, you know, holacracy and people's aversion to the process and, and all the, the sort of rules around when to speak and all of that. Right. I mean, I think that we're averse, we're averse to creating new rituals in teams, right? Because we're these formal, these formalized rituals, they feel uncomfortable at first. Um, you know, we prefer just informal, casual, unstructured interactions for the most part. Um, and so in many ways, it's about getting over that initial discomfort and awkwardness of having these formalized, uh, sort of structured interactions. And, and then I think uh, getting, getting more and more comfortable with that and sort of starting to see the power of what that enables rather than just what that constrains. Yeah, yeah. And so you, you just started to touch on it, but then let, let's, let's segue into to your work around team dynamics then. Um, yeah. so, so what else have you discovered in that field beyond what we, we touched on at the start in terms of uh, psychological safety? Yeah, so I mean, I, I, so, so what we, so what would, uh, this is, you know, we, we just touched on some of the kind of broad themes of that research. Um, but, but more specifically, what we, we basically were studying a, a kind of team, a global team. So this is a team that had uh, U.S. team members, India team members. And so most of interactions were virtual. So I think this is relevant for our current context where yeah. we're all operating in a virtual setting. Um, and this is a team that was extremely uh dysfunctional so people didn't know anything about each other there was a huge amount of disrespect and blaming between especially between kind of the u.s team members and the india team members um and and so we studied this team as it underwent this this intervention and we were it's it's in a way it was action research because we were both designing the intervention and we were studying uh what 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 happened and so essentially what we did is one, we wanted to get people to get to know each other on a personal level. So we uh, required that they, um, uh, so every week they would have one person from India, one person from us call each other and just talk about, you know, get to know each other. Um, and what was interesting is when, when they were first asked to do this, the team members were really uncomfortable. They were like, uh, well, can you give us any guidance on what we can or should be talking about? And so uh, as facilitators, uh, we gave them conversational prompts. So actually like topical prompts, uh, like what's, you know, what does your name, does your family name mean something or how many siblings do you have? Right. I mean, all these things that as human beings, uh, we, we would, we would be very comfortable sort of knowing how to have these conversations uh, but in the workplace, especially this workplace and this team felt extremely uncomfortable. Uh, but having the kind of specific 
uh, conversation prompts, what we learned is that having these very specific question prompts really made it easier for people to have these conversations. Um, and, and so that was one of like, that sort of started to, that was one of the key insights is that uh, in this, we essentially called these, uh, these prompts that we were giving them uh, scripts, uh, interaction scripts. And so they're, you know, they're very specific on what content, you know, what the content of these interactions should be and also what the process is. So, you know, they were supposed to, you know, one, one junior, one senior team member from India, US, uh, they're supposed to talk for, you know, 30 minutes um, and they should be talking about these types of topics. Um, and so, uh, and, then, and then the other part of the intervention was uh, that as a team, they would meet weekly and they would each go around and answer the same four questions about their work, what challenges they were experiencing, and they were even given like response options. So uh, four different levels of face of cartoon faces from smiley to like crying faces. And, and, and so everyone went around each week and shared their response to these questions. And what we found is that this enabled kind of a, a greater level of openness of vulnerability of information sharing of personal connection than, than existed in the team before, and that we know is difficult in most, in, in most organizations. And so we, we sort of theorized about what this intervention really was. And so what we came up with is this notion of spaces, it, that this intervention was a combination of what we call spaces, uh, which are essentially bounded settings where people can interact that is separate from like the normal everyday culture and normal everyday routines. Uh, and that creates sort of a, a zone for experimenting and risk-taking. And then the second piece of it were what we call these interaction scripts. And, you know, they're what specify the very, very clearly and explicitly, okay, here are the types of topics you can discuss. Here are the response options. Here's the ordering, right? Like, um, and, and so it's the combination of those that ultimately we felt like enabled this kind of collective risk-taking. Um, and so I think the key insight here is that normally the types of behaviors, the open sharing, the vulnerability that we know is good for team dynamics is risky for any one individual to engage in. Uh, and the benefits, though, are all accrued to the team, right? So if someone does this, it's beneficial for the team, but the risks are all borne by the individual. So this is a classic, classic collective action problem. And, and, and so what, the, what spaces and scripts do is it creates a platform for collective risk-taking. It makes it easier for any one person to take that risk because they know everyone else is going to take that risk as well. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what we learned is that you know, by, by creating these platforms, by creating these structured interactions, what we're doing is we're resolving or addressing the collective action problem that, that limits and that tends to prevent positive team dynamics from forming. Right. And that actually chimes with my conversation with Amy. She didn't use that term, but I think she was alluding to the similar idea because she talked about the asymmetry in psychological safety, right? That um, if I take a risk and I speak up, um, there's a potentially a benefit in the long term for me having spoken up. But there's a much higher risk in the short term of me getting shut down. For me. Exactly. Right? So I shut up. Uh, but if everybody's in this has is making the same uh, uh, same calculation in their mind, 
is that another example of a collective action problem? Am I, am I right? That's right. No, no, it's exactly the same collective action problem. Um, and, and so unfortunately, though, when we hear about, okay, how do we foster psychological safety? How do we foster these team dynamics? Oftentimes we focus on, okay, what individuals can do, you know, so what, what can they do? So like leaders need to be more humble. They need to ask questions. They need to write or, or individuals need to have the courage to speak up. So, you know, there's sort of this, uh, you know, some, some talk of like, how do people be more courageous in organizations to take these risks? Right, but yeah, but then the the answer to that might be, well, let's 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 have a value called be brave, and let's put it on posters in the yes. list, and just assume people are going to start being brave. But and I'm sure I'm sure that's already happened. I'm <laughs> sure that there are organizations that have done that. And you know, like there's nothing wrong with courage. I think courage is great in organizations, and certainly even in all organizations, there are truth tellers, there are people who speak up even when there are risks uh, or in the face of risks. But to expect that to be the norm, right, is just unrealistic. And so we need to think about this more systemically. We need to think about why people are not speaking up at a systemic level, at a cultural level, and how do we change the risk calculation so that people, uh, normal people, the average person feels comfortable to speak up, to share their viewpoints, you know, to, to be vulnerable, um, et cetera, et cetera. That I think is what we need to be thinking about more. Right. And, and, yeah, and you found a, a great way to do that with these scripts when it came to people getting to know each other at a, a deeper level and, and the benefits that then accrue to the team. That's right. So how can how can we create a sort of architecture? How do we architect this sort of interaction space to make this the default, right? To to make this less risky and to make everyone feel like that they can be taking these risks together. Yeah. That's great. And any and anything else that came out of that that study? Um, I mean, let me see. I, th- th- those were the, the those were kind of the, the the key the key findings. But I think you know, I, I mean, in many ways, uh, what I think is interesting is that this happened very quickly, right? So these changes happened very quickly in the team. So over the course of like ten weeks, uh, the team dynamics went from being extremely dysfunctional to, uh, to people, you know, I wouldn't say it was like nirvana, but, you know, substantial improvement on the team, more connection, more communication, uh, more helping, you know, so that people started helping each other if they were free, you know, had less work or lower bandwidth uh, or, or more bandwidth, they would, you know, offer to help. People would ask each other for more, more assistance. Um, and so there's better collaboration and coordination. So this had real impacts on the way the team did their work, right? It wasn't just about, you know, do we feel connected to each other? Um, and, and so I think, especially in this virtual context, you know, I'm sort of thinking about, okay, how does this apply now to the, to the current reality? Um, you know, we're all having these Zoom meetings in teams and, and I think, you know, everyone is stressed, uh, has le- less bandwidth, there's more crises, and so I think it's easy to not think about how do we maintain or cultivate these relationships, these dynamics in our team. And I think the truth is, or, or one of the insights is that it doesn't take a lot of time, right? To, 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 to have a, a check-in at the beginning of a meeting where people share something that's not work-related, whether that's like how are they feeling, um, what's something that, you know, gave them joy uh, recently, um, what's their spirit animal if you want to get really uh, kind of creative and, and out there. Uh, but, 
these, these little kind of rituals, right? These little rituals, uh, uh, have a really powerful effect on, on kind of bringing the team together and fostering these types of, of, of connections, trust, psychological safety that, that we know makes sort of the work flow much more easily and, uh, productively. Right. Well, then I must ask you, Mike, what is your spirit animal? <laughs> I think it changes. I think it changes. What is it today? Um, God, it's a tough. Okay. Let me think. Um, I don't know. I, I think maybe I'll just, my default is, is a monkey. Uh, and that's probably because, uh, I'm a monkey in the Chinese Zodiac. So I'm Chinese. And so I grew right. up always being, t- I'm a monkey. So, so, uh, so, so, you know, I'm also like, like rate, like thin and long my limbs, you know, so I, I think my body is sort of a little monkey like, um, although I can't climb trees very well. So, um, I'll go with that. Right. Mike the monkey. What's yours? I, I think I, I, it, was, in fact, it was dolphin. <laughs> so dolphin was always my favorite ah. animal. And right now I haven't seen like an, the ocean or been, I, I every time I get a chance, we, we, we could just about get to kind of a quite big river near us. So I love to get out to the river. So nice. yeah, my, my, uh, so my star sign Pisces. So yeah, that's um, yeah, mine as well. Mine is as well. So right, two Pisces. Pisces. As a random tantrum, is that something that's sort of honoured in the Chinese culture as well? The zodiac, the uh, the zodiac specifically, or do you yeah. mean like uh, the astrolo- astrological signs? I suppose uh, the zodiac specifically. I mean, yes, it is. Uh, it's it's unclear. I, I feel like it's not taken too seriously but people do talk about it like my family you know like right. we just had my daughter and she's i think the year of the pig and um so you know it's mentioned um i think they're kind of compal you know there are always these compatibility uh uh rules around okay which which signs are less compatible or more compatible um but you know it's definitely it doesn't feel as um precise as astrology as astrology does and, you know not that astrology is i mean i'm not an astrologist uh but you know it's like yeah. it's the entire year right this so like, be the end of your academic career exactly <laughs> the precision exactly. I have of astrology. To tread careful <laughs> to tr- i have to tread carefully here um uh right so you know you're a monkey if you were born in one entire year right so obviously right. it's hard to put much stock into that so anyway yeah <laughs> no that's good it's a good good diversion well there you go you said this is i think is a good example right you know i've just we probably learned a little bit more about each other in that interaction that's right well where i in that case took the risk you but you gave me the prompt i asked you about right. your spirit that opened something up in this conversation that i don't think would have happened without that little script and you semi giving me the permission to ask it right that's right. And I expressed my vulnerability around my view of the precision of astrology as well. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. And so, so okay, so we've talked to Locracy. Um, we've talked, um, yeah, we've talked about some of your, your research on team dynamics. Um, what, what, what's uh, lighting you up right now, uh, yeah, academically? <laughs> Um, it's a good question. Well, I just finished teaching. So, uh, I'm sort of coming down and trying to, uh, recover from, from that zoom, uh, zoom process. Um, which was, which actually turned out to be quite, quite nice, uh, in the end. And my students were, were fabulous. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think right now I'm, I'm really, um, starting to think, you know, in addition to continuing to sort of work on 
publishing uh, some of my current research, my dissertation, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, what sort of new studies, um, you know, do I want to really look at? So, you know, I think um, do, potentially doing some, you know, field experiments where we take this idea of scripts. Um, so one of the things that happens and happen in these scripts is, is there are these personal scripts and then there are these work-related scripts. So the personal scripts are like, how do we get to know each other as people? The work scripts are really like, what are the challenges that we're experiencing in our work? And, you know, we found in our study that, you know, both of them were really important and they, they sort of support, they mutually reinforced each other. But it would be interesting to see, okay, like, you know, do we need both? Like, you know, what if a team just used personal scripts or work-related scripts? Like, what sort of impacts does that have? Do you need both? Um, you know, I think questions around facilitation. So, you know, one of the things that I'm really interested in and find fascinating is that, you know, most management meetings are run by, most meetings are run by the manager. Um, and, and so we know from lots of research that when the manager is running the meetings, uh, people are not going to speak up as much, or at least that's, you know, I don't know if anyone has actually, this, this, in a way, that's what I'm interested in is I don't know if anyone's actually studied, okay, what happens when we run meetings, when teams run meetings and the manager is no longer running the meeting. Um, so, you know, lots like holacracy and holacracy, the meetings are not run by the sort of team lead. There still is a team lead role, but that person does not run, facilitate the meetings. There's a separate role of facilitator that's elected and the, that person is responsible for kind of holding the process of the meeting. Um, and what I also discovered with holacracy is that after a while, actually, the, the, even the individual facilitator role somewhat diminishes, right? Because people become so familiar with the process, it's, it's almost, yes, almost right. become self-facilitating. That's right. So people sort of self-facilitate. And then people, they also usually uh, suggest that teams rotate the facilitator to kind of create, uh, you know, there could be power that, is, uh, that gets kind of accrued to that role over time. And so part of it is also like, let's make sure that we continue to rotate people in and out of this role. Um, and so what, what if like, even in a traditional hierarchical structure, what if teams elected a facilitator or had a facilitator who wasn't the manager who to actually run the meeting? What, what, what impact would that have on kind of how much information is shared, how people feel, about the meeting, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one idea that I, you know, I think I would love to do is run a, run an experiment where we essentially have some teams that, uh, uh, you know, continue to operate with managers that the meeting facilitator and others that, um, you know, elect someone else and develop some kind of like agreement. Okay. Here's how we're going to run the meeting. Um, so, I mean, even small, like changes like this, I think are, have the potential to have a pretty large impact on, psychological safety on empowerment on team performance coordination information sharing and so you know looking at how we can design interventions to to explore what you know what are the levers what are these levers that we can change um is interesting to me and then also i think more broadly um you know in this one of the things i'm i'm sort of about to send out a survey um or that is exploring what how has you know, we, everyone is talking about, okay, the new normal, how is this going to change the way we work? It's obviously changed the way we work temporarily. Um, 
but I feel like we still don't really understand at a kind of more nuanced level, like what's really, what has really happened with the way people work beyond, yes, we're doing it virtually. You know, yes, we have our kids at home and don't have any childcare. Um, right. So we're all like crazed, but you know, how is this actually changing, um, the dynamics that sort of within teams? And so whether that's, you know, how empowered are you? How micromanaged are you? Um, what's the sort of the nature and dynamics of the communication within the teams now? How are decisions, like how quickly are decisions being made? Um, lots of these different aspects, you know, conflicts, experimentation, risk-taking. Um, and so I'm, you know, planning to collect some data and send out a survey um, to, to really collect, okay, what are the stories that people have around, okay, what, what are the ways in which work has changed for the better as a result of this? And what, has, what, have, what are the ways in which your team or your work and the way your team works, how has it changed for the worse? And so I really think that this, you know, like any crisis, this, this has the potential to kind of create a divergence where it may lead some teams to really uh, kind of change their dynamics and change the way they work in a really productive and positive way and other teams in a really negative way. Um, and so I think understanding that at a, at a deeper level is something that I'm currently, you know, uh, working on collecting some data around and, and developing some, you know, some insight around what's actually going on. Great. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I'd love to get you uh, back on the show at some point, uh, you know, later down the line, if you, if you develop some findings there, that'd be fascinating to see what you learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and anecdotally, I'm hearing a lot of positive things um, actually right now. Engagement yeah, going right, on. Engagement? Like, okay. like people spoken to a couple of CEOs on a call yesterday, actually, and they were finding that they were getting much more access to the teams because they could just jump on a call really easily, right? Mm. And, and, and drop into a meeting in a way that they couldn't have done before. And that was having an increase in engagement of staff. Um, oh, so that's that a positive. Um, another story in terms of getting close to customers, much easier just to invite a customer and say, hey, can you come and join our team huddle? We'd love to get your thoughts. Much easier than you know trying to set up the logistics of a physical meeting. Oh, interesting. So those were, um, uh, and then, but also the drain. Yeah, and then I saw some some great research about why Zoom calls drain us, yeah. especially group calls, because we're, yeah. we're we're simultaneously trying to trying to process. Up, yeah, the body language of like ten of people like, at once, right, yeah. in a way that we wouldn't in a physical situation. So people finding they're getting drained, you know, just um, yeah. you know, by the sort of Zoom marathons. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So now the, the, the couple of some of the some of the things I'm yeah. picking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, but, yeah. but I, I, I'm fairly hopeful actually that this is going to be a po- overall a positive change. People will end up on net with more freedom in their lives and less. You you mean even after we say go yeah. back to the office yeah and- I think I think because I think so many managers will have could have gone through a trust a forced sort of curve <sighs> to trust the technology and will I suspect allow people more freedom mm. um, now whether there's a sort of a correction back and you know we're also seeing spike in sales of sort of employee spyware right that can software mm-hmm. that can monitor your keystrokes per you know second or whatever. Uh, so, so yeah, so it's not like it's necessarily all going to be positive, but my, my expectation is that this will be, this is going to be a net, net positive for the workplace. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know if I have, uh, 
uh, so I, I feel like I'm fairly ambivalent at this stage. Um, and, uh, you know, cause I think people tend to, right. People tend to react, uh, in very different ways to, to these crises and, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe I'm a little bit more skeptical than you about that. Um, I'm hopeful that you're right. Uh, but you know, I mean, I certainly think virtual work is going to be more, uh, acceptable and norm, you know, normal, normatively kind of, uh, okay. in organizations as a result, whether that's like people working from home more often, and, and that's going to obviously be the reality for quite a bit of time, but whether that actually changes the kind of level of empowerment or control or autonomy that, that managers give to people, I'm, I'm much more skeptical about. Um, because in the end, the dynamics of like why managers do that, if they can, right, if they're physically able to monitor and which, which once you go back to the office, you would be, um, th- they're still there. Right, the defaults are still there. The accountability that managers are facing, the the sort of um, all of that is still there. And right now, maybe the, the answer is like managers just can't monitor right now. Um, they're just physically incapable of doing that. But once they're able to again, like it's unclear to me why they wouldn't. Um, so that's so so maybe that's where some of my skepticism comes from. But uh, but but I guess we'll we'll have to see. And it's a uh, ultimately a good 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 question for research. Yeah. And good that you're, yeah, staying, uh, staying skeptical. <laughs> good. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Mike. Um, in terms of people finding you and your research, where, where's the best place to, to point them? Um, so, yeah, they could either go to, uh, so my website, which is just michaelylee.co, C-O. Um, they could search me, uh, my name in INSEAD. It's a Michael Lee INSEAD. Uh, and also on Twitter, uh, my handle, uh, which uh, is my Chinese name, which so it's uh, probably not worth trying to uh, to say here, but uh, but it's also on my 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 personal website, and 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 maybe we can uh, put it with the episode. We'll put it where, yeah, exactly. We'll put we'll yeah, put all exactly. the links in the episode so, as well, but for so, yeah. people listening. Okay, well, thank you once again. Uh, enjoy enjoy the rest of of your day uh, in in the States. Uh, yeah, it's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks Richard. And I uh, had a great, great, uh, great time. Thank you. The being human podcast was brought to you by first human for more on first humans, human focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.